We've been looking at this song of love, which is addressed to the king celebrating his marriage. And we've established that this is the king spoken of here is Christ. We'll see that even more this evening. Thus far, just a little review here, thus far we've examined some of the attributes of this king. For instance, in verse 2, Thou art fairer than the sons of man. Grace is poured upon thy lips. Therefore God has blessed thee forever. Not only is he one who is fairer than the sons of men, but he is also portrayed for us in this psalm as an awesome warrior, one who rides forth victoriously in the cause of, in verse um, 4, the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And we spent the last time examining some of the sharp arrows that this warrior has, warrior arrows that go to the heart of the king's enemies. We spoke of the arrow or arrows of temporal judgment, that is, judgment in this life, both national and on an individual level. We spoke of the fearful arrow of final judgment that comes at the end of the world, and we spoke of the gracious arrow of the conviction of sin that can right now pierce any hard heart. So here is a warrior, a king, a warrior king that goes forth conquering and to conquer. And one way or another, all will bow before him. Tonight what we want to do is examine the pivotal verse or verses in this psalm. And uh, really it's because of these verses that are symbolic interpretation rests uh, is established on these two verses, verses 6 and 7. But uh, why don't we just read, well, we'll read the first seven verses here. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon thy lips, therefore God has blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in thy splendor and in thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Thine arrows are sharp, the peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated in, and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of joy above thy fellows. 
Well, like I said, the verses that we are zeroing in on this evening are verses 6 and 7. We find out in these verses that this king that we're talking about is of royal lineage. He is, in fact, of the most royal lineage possible. He is the Son of God. We're told here that his throne, his deity, his righteous kingdom will last forever. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And we are told that he is, in fact, God himself. Speaking to the king, the psalmist says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. An incredible verse. How could the psalmist say such a thing as that? Here he is describing the marriage of a king. And like I said when we started this, we don't know what earthly king he was talking about. Some think Solomon, but it doesn't fit really. He doesn't fit. Uh, and no one fits this verse when he starts talking about this king being God. There can only be one answer to this. But how could the psalmist write such a thing at that time? Well, the fact is he wrote things that he didn't understand by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God just had him write that. There's no, there's no other explanation for why he would have put that in there like that. I like the way Alexander McLaren put it in his commentary on this verse. He said it this way, I take it that this is an instance in which the psalmist was wiser than he knew and in which you and I understand him better than he understood himself. We know what he was speaking of. He didn't know what he was speaking of. He just wrote it because this is what God had him write. <clears throat> uh, I think that's good. You and I understand him, that is the psalmist, better than he understood himself. Well, how come you and I understand that? Well, it's because we have the revelation of the person and work of Christ in the New Testament and in our hearts. There's no question that this refers to Jesus because it is quoted in the New Testament. And let's turn to that. We'll just work from the New Testament here just a little bit. Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> The context here, were actually the verses that uh, are quoted from this psalm are in verses 8 and 9. But I want to go back and deal with the context here just a little bit. And that is that Christ is superior to the angels. Christ was not an angel, and he was superior to any and all of the angels. Now that's something we take for granted as Christians, but it was a very real issue when this letter was written. It was a, a, such an issue that uh, the writer of Hebrews spends most of the first chapter on that subject. Angels were considered and are considered to be exalted beings. 
greater than us humans, but less than God. And Christ, as a man, was for a time a little lower than the angels. So was he greater than the angels? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, yes, infinitely greater than the angels. Why? Well, let me just show you quickly here. Um, Verse 4, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. First, that's his first argument. God never said to, any, to the angels, You're my son, today, today I have begotten thee. Uh, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. That's his first one. His second one, the angels were called to worship. Christ. If that's the case, Christ has to be greater than the angels. You see that in verse 6. And he again, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Then he goes on to talk about the angels being uh, ministering spirits. But the third argument that he uses is the one that he takes from the psalm that that, uh, we've been looking at. And that is that Christ is, in fact, the righteous ruler of all things. God himself come to earth. See it in verse 8. But to the Son, he says, and then he quotes this, uh, Psalm 45, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. So here is one whose throne is forever and ever, and he is, in fact, God himself. What more could you say to establish the fact that this one is greater than the angels? Christ is fully God, and he has an eternal throne. His superior superiority to the angels is therefore completely established, and it's permanent. His throne is forever and ever. How did the writer of this epistle to the Hebrews know that these verses applied to Jesus Christ? Well, again, of course, the answer to that is that he was given insight by God into this. But I think there is an important key that's easily missed when we read these verses in English. And that key is found in verse 9, where it says, Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. That word anointed, in the Hebrew, the word for anointing, right here in this passage, is a word, M-E-S-H-C-H-A. Meshka, so I'd say it, but it's from that word that we derive our word Messiah. So right in this passage, you knew that this was a messianic passage because the word's right there in the word anointed. See, Messiah, we sometimes forget that that word Messiah means anointed one. 
So, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews was able to go back and look in this psalm and say, this verse that talks about God is speaking of the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. You know, in the Old Testament, the priests were anointed, the prophets were sometimes anointed, and kings were anointed. And here was one who would be a prophet, priest, and king, anointed by God himself. Therefore God, thy God hath anointed thee, anointed by God himself. And he was anointed above all others. His anointing was not with any earthly derived anointing oil but it was with the oil of gladness which I think speaks of the Holy Spirit Acts 10.38 says you know that Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power so to New Testament believers, there's only one person that this verse, these verses in Psalm 45 could possibly be referring to, and that's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one who was in fact God, God come to earth, God with us, Emmanuel. The one who would reign forever and ever. All this whole verse, you, you just when you meditate on it, you know it has to be about Christ. Here's one that's going to reign. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Well, let's turn back to verse or to Psalm forty five then. <clears throat> There's a couple of other phrases uh, in this portion of the psalm that I'd like to deal with. In verse 7, no, excuse me, uh, in, in the last part of verse 6, a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom, or it can be translated a righteous scepter or a scepter of uprightness. So it would be good just to uh, take a moment here to ask ourselves, what is a scepter? Not a word we use a whole lot. Might use a little more if we were in England. It's a ornamental staff held by a ruling monarch, a scepter. It symbolized governing power and authority. Now, I uh, went to the library this afternoon because I wanted to find a picture of... Um, actually, I was looking... I thought they had a big book there of the crown jewels because one of the crown jewels is the scepter that the king or queen 
holds when, when, when they're crowned. Well, I couldn't find a big book, but I, I did find this one. So this is Queen Elizabeth II, and she was a lot, a lot younger than she is today. Uh, I know you won't be able to see it very well, but right there in her right hand is the scepter. Um, this is a probably kind of an expensive little object because it has the second biggest diamond in the world. I got a close up here, but it's not in color. Right in this, the very top part of the scepter right here is the second largest diamond in the world. Um, 530 carats. So, it's uh, actually, on the top of that, there's a cross, well, a kind of a stylized cross, which is supposed to symbolize the fact that the temporal power of the monarch is under the cross. Mm. It's a good idea. <laughs> Well, anyway, she, uh, the queen held that in her hand in 1953 when she at her coronation at Westminster Abbey. Uh, so that's a scepter. It's a, it's a symbol of power and authority that a king or queen has. And uh, we're told that the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of this king's kingdom. A righteous scepter, a scepter of righteousness. This king, in other words, this king's power and authority was characterized by absolute righteousness. And there's n never been any other king or monarch like this. No earthly ruler. There's always a mixture, even in the best, there's always a mixture of righteousness and unrighteousness. His own personal character, this king that we're looking at here, is totally righteous. And all that he does in his kingdom is done in righteousness. In other words, everything done by this king is just. Everything. Everything done by this king is equitable. Everything done by this king is exactly right. He's done none of his sir, subjects or servants the least wrong. He is, in fact, a sovereign that loves righteousness he loves righteousness you see that in verse 7 thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity or wickedness loving righteousness is more than doing it because it's a duty and it's certainly more than putting on a show of righteousness to advance whatever selfish motive you might have. I couldn't help but think of a picture that I saw of 
Adolf Hitler, the extreme opposite of what we're talking about. But in his early uh, quest for power, he had a picture, well, they took a picture of him coming out of a church carrying a Bible. Now, why was he carrying that Bible? I mean, it looks pretty righteous, doesn't it? one of the most unrighteous people, hated God, hated the Bible. See, he had other motives. But here is a king whose motive, deep down, for what he does is that he loves righteousness. He's the only person, the only, certainly the only ruler who totally and truly loves righteousness. He rejoices in righteousness. He, he su supports righteousness always and everywhere. And right along with that, you can't not do that unless you do the other part, which is hating wickedness. Hating wickedness is more than just speaking against wickedness. People can do that for the wrong motive. Politician will do that to get elected. And hating righteousness is more than leaving certain sin or iniquity because of its harmful effect. People will do that. They'll quit a sin because they see it's not good for them. But this king hates wickedness for what it is, because it's wicked. Not for any expediency that might come from doing away with iniquity. No, he hates wickedness. Here is one who totally hates iniquity. He abhors iniquity. He fights against it always and everywhere. And then we're told something else here. Because of this, because thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of joy above thy fellows. There's a connection, you see, between the, this anointing and the fact that he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And there always is a connection with God's anointing. It has to do with loving righteousness and hating iniquity. Though he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, he was also one who spoke of giving others his joy. You see that? It's the oil of joy or the oil of gladness. God anointed him with the oil of joy above his fellows. Because he hated 
wickedness and loved righteousness. Um, again, let me read from Alexander McLaren. Remember how near the very darkest hour of the Lord's earthly experiences, he said, These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Just days, a few days before the crucifixion. He's talking about his joy being in his people. Christ's gladness flowed from Christ's righteousness. Christ's gladness flowed from Christ's righteousness. Because his pure humanity was ever in touch with God and in conscious obedience to him, therefore, though darkness was around him, there was light within. He was sorrowful yet always rejoicing, And the saddest of men was likewise the gladdest and possessed the oil of joy above his fellows. The saddest was the gladdest. A great portion of that joy I know this is easy to misunderstand, but a great portion of that joy for him and for us is still yet to come. And that will be when the bride is united to the king in marriage. And that's what the rest of the psalm is about. Most of the rest of the psalm. A subject that we'll take up next time is the marriage of the king to his bride. We'll look a little at what she's like. Now, all this, again, is in symbolic form here. And some of it is, this gets a little harder to pinpoint exactly uh, towards the end of the psalm. But I think in general terms... We can make out some some truths here that will be profitable for us. But I want to close with just a brief exhortation. And that is, if we would have the oil of joy, this oil of gladness that we've been talking about, we must have something of his love of righteousness and hatred of iniquity. Because that's... That's the, the flow there. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of joy above thy fellows. Something of the love of righteousness and hatred of iniquity that he had. And we don't naturally have that. It's not the way we're born. It's just the opposite. What has to happen? What has to happen is that arrow from the king, the warrior king, has to go into our heart and convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. 
if we would be like the king, we must bow to the king, we must submit to the king, we must trust the king, we must honor the king. And all this comes out here in relationship to the bride later on in this psalm. Well, that begins to happen when the king brings us to himself. That's when that begins. When there's, there's something happens in the heart, when that arrow goes in and there's a transformation. Instead of loving iniquity and hating righteousness, something happens and you begin to love righteousness and hate iniquity. Not perfect, not like the king, but you begin more and more to be like the king. And that will be perfected when the king comes again and there is this great wedding and that's what we're going to look at or uh, at least start to look at next time.